This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Americans believe in and really like the extraordinary. We speak frequently, and not without some reason, of American exceptionalism. Since the 1720s, evangelical Christianity in America has been dominated by a desire to see and experience the extraordinary, whether that be the attempt to replicate the acts of the apostles or an encounter with the risen Christ that is unmediated by the preached word or the use of the sacraments. As Americans, we struggle with the ordinary, and in late modern culture, we are also beset with ennui. That is, in the words of the new Oxford American Dictionary, a feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. That pretty much sums up the spirit of the age. So evangelical leaders seek to inspire us with calls to radical, restless Christianity. Mike Horton, however, says that there is another way, that we can break the endless cycle of restless questing for the next big thing. He's author of a number of books, including Calvin on the Christian Life and The Gospel-Driven Life. His newest book is Ordinary, Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World. These and other faculty titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. Glad to be with you. Why is ordinary one of the loneliest words in the Christian vocabulary today, and, and how did it get that way? <laughs> well, yeah, nobody wants to have a bumper sticker, my child is an ordinary kid at Bubbling <laughs> Brook Elementary. You know, no one wants to be an ordinary person in an ordinary family, in an ordinary house living in an ordinary neighborhood, going to an ordinary church in an ordinary country. We have this expectation now that everybody should step it up a notch. Everything should be radical, extraordinary, superb. And so it's hard for us, I think, to value that which comes in ordinary packages, and yet some of the most important things do. Can we pin this dissatisfaction with the ordinary on any particular demographic group or generational group? <laughs> that sounds like a leading question. <laughs> well, I like to blame the boomers for I know, everything. I know. Don't we all? And, you know, the, the problem is survey, like the recent study by Gene Twenge showed that the boomers aren't all that unique, unfortunately. But along those very lines, there's a great quote from Joe Queenan, writer for the New York Times and, and GQ. And he wrote a very very interesting book. He calls it A Short But Self-Important History of the Boomer Generation. He says, a baseball game used to be a baseball game, but now it replaces bar mitzvahs and first holy communions, weddings and funerals as a moment of celestial and eschatological significance. Because baby boomers are obsessed with living in the moment, they insist that every experience be a watershed, every meal extraordinary, every friendship epochal, every concert superb, every sunset meta-celestial. Well, life isn't like that. Most meals are okay. Most friendships work till they don't. Most concerts are decent. Sunsets are sunsets. By turning spectacularly humdrum occurrences into formal rites, baby boomers have transmuted even the most banal activities into events requiring reflection, planning, research, underwriting, and staggering masses of data. Well, this has essentially ruined everything for everybody else because nothing can ever again be exactly what it was in the first place, something whose very charm is a direct result of its being accessible, near at hand, ordinary. Does having everything on video put additional pressure on us and everyone to make everything spectacular? 
Well, I think that there is this tendency for us. Neil Gabler wrote a book on this, Life the Movie Starring Everyone, where he talks about how so much of our entertainment society has encouraged us to think that we're the stars of our own show. And that's the way we are anyway, but the way this gets cashed out now, I think in our day, is the whole idea of starring in our own life movie. So that means everything else is a prop for our life movie. Everyone else is either a walk-on or a supporting actor in our story. And basically, there's a good name for this. It's narcissism. We're staring into the pond, seeing our own reflection, and are falling in love with ourselves. This is a real problem for us. How do we sort of have our faces slapped out of that self-entranced gaze and find ourselves looking up in faith toward God and out to our neighbors in love? How can we get outside of ourselves? And the real answer to that is through the ordinary means that God has provided, especially his preached word and baptism in the Lord's Supper, the fellowship of the saints, the public ministry of prayer, and then we bring all of that back with us to our family worship and to our personal times with the Lord. We really need to begin to see ourselves as not those who have found a place for God in our life movie as a supporting actor but have realized that he has done this most marvelous thing of killing our character and rewriting us into his story, no longer dead in Adam, but alive in Christ. I'm a historian, and I tend to look at structures and circumstances, sometimes as much or more than, than looking at people. And one of the things I wonder about relative to the rise of the extraordinary and the eclipse of the ordinary is the move from the rural to the urban. That sort of intensifies everything. When you live in a rural setting where most of us lived once upon a time, life is rather ordinary, and it's largely out of your control. You plant. Corn grows slowly. <laughs> it does what it does. Yeah, the corn is ready to be harvested when it's ready to be harvested. There's not a lot you can do to speed that up. So life is sort of determined by a rhythm that is outside yeah. of you. That's exactly right. You're you're at the mercy of the weather, of the elements, and you feel a lot more like you are just a small part of the universe, and God is the one who holds the whole world in his hands. Yeah, I don't think that we can just assign the blame for this to our culture and the transition from an agricultural economy to an information and consumer economy. But urban life is yeah. more artificial. Yeah. I mean, you you can do more to create your own persona, your own persona, your own environment. Whereas if you live in a rural setting, it's likely to be much more stable. You're not anonymous. Exactly. You're not anonymous. Your neighbor who, if you're on the farm, lives in the next section over or quarter section or whatever, you know, and that farm may have been in the same family for generations. If you live in town, then, you know, folks are likely to have been there for a while. And so there is a kind of routine and ordinary quality to life. Whereas if you move to Manhattan, it goes maybe not 24 hours a day, but it goes a long time and the lights are on at night. It's light. It's exciting. It's You're less accountable too because you're anonymous. You're anonymous. You know, we go to the city. A lot of people, I think, go to the city to get away from the people they grew up with, they grew up with including their family. And they basically reinvent themselves in the city. City is where reinvention happens. Now, that can be a good thing in the sense that people who were maybe not 
open to hearing the gospel or were in a non-gospel preaching church can suddenly hear the gospel in an urban area and they're ready and open to change. But very often it works in the other direction, that people are so obsessed with their own persona that they are making and remaking themselves every minute. And that is showing, among other things, our inability to live with ourselves, with God, with other people, our inability really to simply be ordinary and to be faithful in that ordinariness. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Why is the adjective radical so attractive? There are a lot of writers, contemporary evangelical writers, who are encouraging us in different ways to pursue a radical Christian life or some radical version of Christianity. What's that all about, and why does that seem to be so persuasive and exciting to so many folks? Well, you know, on one hand, I think that it's motivated by a a sincere desire to not be mediocre Christians who just go along with the flow. And ordinary, by the way, does not mean mediocre. If we have time to talk about that, I've spent a whole chapter talking about that point. Please, because all my Christian life, one of my frustrations has been that people within the church have said, well, it's good enough. Yeah. Right. If you ask Mrs. Right. Clark, she'll say, if you want to get his blood pressure up, just say, it's good enough. Yeah. No, it, it's not good enough. Mediocre isn't enough, right? No. But the thing is, when you talk to people who've pursued excellence in any field, one thing that you learn very quickly is that excellence requires patience with the ordinary. If I go into 24-hour fitness and say, hey, I saw the ad for dropping 20 pounds in uh, three weeks and six-pack abs, a real trainer that is one who pursues excellence, is going to laugh and say, you know what, you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, life doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. (laughs) Especially over a certain age. Over a certain age, especially. But, you know, the things that you value, the things that you care about, you put the time into it, but it's the ordinary, patient, daily habits that actually contribute to character and excellence over the long haul in the biggest things of life. Think of marriage. A good marriage And you don't have to have an out-of-this-world, made-in-heaven marriage. Come on, let's have ordinary marriages. Ordinary marriages would be great in this country. (laughs) That would be a step up. A step up. Good marriages are made of billions of ordinary moments. Yeah, there are also terrific getaways. And so what we often tend to do is think, I'm going to mess up, I'm going to ignore my wife and kids. But then in three weeks, we have this stupendous out of the park, extraordinary family vacation. And it's we're going to make up for it all. It's going to make up for all. Hey, we're going to Disney. It's going to be amazing. It'll be unbelievable. No, even when we do have, you know, the wonderful anniversary dinner, when we do have that spectacular moment with our children, it is the product of accumulated moments of ordinary time together. The stuff I remember about my dad is really not the spectacular stuff. It's the ordinary stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember walking with him and not being able to keep up. Mm -hmm. That's what I remember. It's a wonderful memory, yeah. Yeah, but it's not spectacular. Right. So we delude ourselves when we say, well, we can ignore the family, but make up for it, and then that's the stuff they'll remember. That's what quality time means, you know, quality time. And that's a trap, right? Of course it's a trap because basically it evades our responsibility. And I have to say, I think that there's something similar going on there with revival and the history of revivalism. Why do we need revival? Well, we need revivals to evangelize the world, to really up our game in missions, to become more holy, to become more interested in the things of the Lord, so on and so forth. 
Well, my response to that is not that those are bad goals. My response to that is that should be the daily transformation by the Word of God that happens through the ordinary means of grace, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, in our family worship, in our informal moments together talking about something that makes us think of God's world, and in our personal time of reading Scripture and praying and and so forth. It should be ordinary. The Word of God, when it's proclaimed, each Lord's Day is a mission. It prepares us to be missionaries to our co-workers and our extended family and friends, missionaries to our spouses and our children. If we get rid of the ordinary and we replace church, for example, with a theme park, then ironically, what we're really going to lose is that excellence that we're called to in the Christian life. We're going to lose all of those opportunities in countless moments of ordinary, non-shocking, non-radical moments to a parade that just happens to blow through town. Eventually, the 600-foot roller coaster becomes blasé. Yeah. Then you need an 800-foot roller coaster. That's right. A good baseball team does the routine things. It handles the routine pop flies and grounders, and a good batter gets on base, right? It's not necessary to be a good batter to be hitting home runs all the time. And the guy who goes to the plate swinging for the fences probably isn't going to be a very successful hitter. Well, yeah, exactly. And think of even the people who really do make a big difference, extraordinary difference in the world. I use the example of Rosa Parks. She didn't get up one morning and say, you know what? I'm tired of my boring, ordinary life. I think that I want to be the first lady of civil rights. Instead, here was a woman who was very ordinary, shaped by ordinary life in an ordinary community, church, community, neighborhood, of oppression, but with values and a longing for the coming of Christ's kingdom. And so she's on the bus, this woman formed by all sorts of ordinary people around her over her lifetime. She sits on a bus, and that day she just decides, you know what, I'm not going to get up, I'm not going to sit in the back of the bus today. Very ordinary act. She's an ordinary woman formed by ordinary circumstances, and she actually performs a very ordinary act. But it's at the right time in the right place by God's providence, and it has extraordinary implications and effects of, in fact, marking the beginning of the civil rights movements for African Americans. Huge. Go down the line and you see, you know, if you ask the people in the world who have made a difference, a big difference, we see them as heroes in our lives, their autobiography is going to be, hey, look, this wasn't rocket science. Basically, I can't tell you exactly how this happened. I was just doing what I was supposed to do. Yeah. And something big came out of that. Right. But I wasn't aiming necessarily to do something big. Countless people do the small act that Rosa Parks did of courage and of love and justice, so forth. Self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Countless people do that and never find their name in the newspaper. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. 
888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. You suggest that really being radical isn't all that radical if we put it in the context of the history of American Christianity. No, I think, as you well know, the history of revivalism has actually prepared us for a perpetual shock at the next big thing. Our culture is obviously obsessed with the next big thing, the next sneakers, the next mobile device, the next fleet of airplanes. Everything has to be bigger, more radical than what preceded it. That's our culture, but I think that a lot of that which is distinctive in our culture was shaped in part actually by revivalism. I don't think it's that the church has been shaped by the culture as much as the culture has been shaped by the church, by the history of revivalism here. It was the only game in town. It was entertainment. It was the mall. It was community town hall meeting. It was part church. It was all those things wrapped up together. It was the central defining event in the lives of a lot of people whenever the revival would come to town. So I think that we kept becoming depressed after a while with the ordinary and therefore did not really pursue excellence with it. No wonder it became boring. And then looked for this great extraordinary supercharge to somehow wake us up and get us excited again about being Christians. Another adjective that you use in the book is restless. There are a lot of folks talking about, you know, being young, restless, and reformed. Is reformed theology, piety, and practice restless? Should the Christian life be restless? No. The more the Holy Spirit indwells us, the greater the longing is for Christ's return and the truly extraordinary consummation that will result from that. So, inasmuch as we're living between the first advent of Christ and the second, then there is a sort of inevitable restlessness because we're not where we will ultimately be, and we are not yet what we will ultimately be. Right. But I think the restlessness that Colin Hansen, as a journalist, really captured in that phrase is more of a cultural restlessness and also more of a youthful restlessness. Look, being restless is being young. Whenever I still have restless feelings, I chalk it up to my youthfulness. I can think back to moments when I did such stupid things out of motives of wanting to do something big for God or to do something big for myself, wanting to make a difference, wanting to take a plunge, wanting to sort of get myself and what I was doing noticed. That is part of being a kid. That's part of our youthfulness, being impetuous, being impatient, being unwilling to listen to others who've had more experience than we have. That's all part of youthfulness. That's why the New Testament again and again exhorts young people, especially young men, to patience and to listen to their elders and to be slow to speak and to have self-control. Why? Because the opposite is what we tend to in our youthfulness. Being young is being restless. But when people grow up, they're supposed to lose some of that restlessness and begin to now value things that can only develop over a long period of time. They begin to value history more than they did. They come to value the stories their grandparents tell more than they did. You and I realize now, I think, how much we're shaped by our parents and by our grandparents. Yeah. We can see in ourselves different ways in which we're like mom, we're like dad, and that we're not absolutely unique individuals. 
That's right. And I really do fear, Scott, that the young and restless part is killing the Reformed part because Reformed theology, of course, is a whole confession of faith and practice. And a church, right? And a church. When people reduce it to five points and then say it has nothing to do with your view of the church or the sacraments or the covenant and so forth, it's only these five doctrines has nothing to do with how we live, how we believe together, worship together, and so forth. They're not Reformed. They're just young and restless, and they like a few things that Reformed people have said. But what happens is even those doctrines that they do accept from the Reformed tradition become distorted as a result. And the practice that results becomes distorted. We know of events, it seems like every two weeks we hear about them, where some celebrity, even among young, restless, Reformed brothers and sisters, is deposed or is caught doing something he shouldn't. In other words, youthful vices catch up with him. What was hip 10, 15 years ago is now tedious and maybe destructive. Yeah. I mean, you've got a movement that starts in the 70s with the surf culture in Southern California, freewheeling, no institutional rules, let's just let the spirit lead us. And yet it ends up with a leader at the top who creates this thing called the Moses model of leadership, where he's the Moses. And basically, everybody listens to him until he dies. The papacy lurks around every corner. (laughs) Exactly. The bottom line here is, look, the Reformed tradition has thought a lot about things. It didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's Catholic. It takes what is best from the apostolic heritage, even from the medieval period of the church's existence, purges it, cleans it, washes it up, discriminates between truth and error, has its own confession of the faith of the church that is consistent with the ecumenical creeds, and has practices that are older and wiser than the church that began in somebody's garage last week. So, at some point, as we grow up, we need to submit ourselves to a community that is larger, richer, wiser than we are. And in submitting, we find the greatest liberation from ourselves and from the narrowness, that incredibly narrow band of our own individual experience, emotions, drives, goals, and visions. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Pastor, I feel this tremendous pressure to experience radical Christianity, that everything in my life should be excellent, that I somehow I feel like I'm missing out on the next big thing. What have you got for me? How can you help me? I just don't think I'm meeting up to these standards. I don't think my life really is all that excellent or all that radical, and uh, I'm not even sure what I should do about the next big thing. Well, if you're pursuing radical, you probably won't be excellent. That's the bottom line. Excellent and radical are two different things. If you're pursuing the radical, you're probably impatient with the very qualities and characteristics that will give you excellence and make you excellent over the long haul. But I'm still not meeting the test of being really and truly radical. Who wrote the test? Well, that's a good question. What test are you talking about? So, how does the gospel help me, and how do we relate the gospel to the demand to be radical? Well, first of all, Jesus Christ was radical. Jesus Christ is truly radical. Jesus is God incarnate and died for our sins and rose for our justification because we didn't, in fact, meet even the ordinary standards. You know, the law is not extraordinary standards. It's the ordinary standards that God created us with the natural ability to keep. Love God and your neighbor. That's right. 
We have lost that moral ability because of the fall, but it's what we were wired for in the beginning. Jesus Christ is radical in that sense, but even with Jesus, think about this for a moment, turning from Jesus as Savior to Jesus as model. We are told in Luke 2 that Jesus is God incarnate and that there was absolutely no possibility for this coming about in the ordinary way, a man and woman having a child. Mary says, how will this happen? I've never been with a man. And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and will overshadow you so that what is born of you will be from God. He will be the Son of God. Now, that's extraordinary. And yet, what we learn not much later is that Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding and in favor with God, in favor and, man. With God and man. He grew and increased even in virtues. He had no vices, but he increased in virtues. He increased in wisdom and godliness and stature stature and in all kinds of ways. That wasn't miraculous. That's why we talk about the miraculous virginal conception. Jesus' birth wasn't miraculous. Jesus growing up in Nazareth wasn't miraculous. He grew up and learned things, including his father's trade. He learned the Psalter. He learned to fear God and love his neighbor the way other kids on the street were learning this. He had a peculiar interest in it. And the difference is, he actually did it. But he did it. And the one who did it, the one we're talking about, who grew up in a normal, ordinary way, is in fact God. And what that reminds us of, that we already learned from creation and providence, is that God loves the ordinary. He assumed our existence. Which is why he was implausible, right? I mean, people looked at him and said, well, we know this guy. We know his parents. He can't be anything special. That's right. We played stickball with him in the street. So they mocked him. They humiliated him. uh, They sought to kill him. And eventually uh, they did. But it's his ordinariness that made him near enough to make him accessible. Near enough so that he's not floating 20 feet off the ground above us. He's like us in every respect, sin accepted. Exactly. He came all the way down. And ironically, man... The fact that he became so ordinary, he came all the way down, was actually an excuse people used, as you point out, to say, well, he's just ordinary. So the good news is that Jesus has fulfilled God's law for me and for you, for all who believe. He was extraordinary for you. He was extraordinary for us. And that, in a sense, relieves us from the demand, if you will, to always be questing after the next big thing, after the extraordinary, because we'll never be radical enough. We'll never be extraordinary enough. We're just Christians who've been redeemed by the Christ. So now I've put my trust in the one who was extraordinary for me. Where do I find what you call a sustainable Christian life? First and foremost, by, you're going to say this is so ordinary, but that's what we're talking about. First and foremost, by finding a church where the gospel is rightly preached, the sacraments are rightly administered, and there are shepherds to care for you. Elders who are uh, looking out for your spiritual welfare, deacons who are looking out for the temporal welfare of the saints, a church that is the household of God, an embassy of Christ's kingdom in this passing age. Find that body and become part of it. You will find yourself Over time, not immediately, over time, you'll find yourself gradually transformed and changed. In surprising ways. You will find yourself actually believing that even you can be forgiven the sins you've committed and still commit. That even you can be a new creature in Christ. That even you can be a disciple growing and maturing with all of these other sinners who have placed their faith in Christ and are being renewed by the Holy Spirit according to the image of Christ day by day. 
So there's another sense to this word ordinary. We've been using the word ordinary in the sense of routine, but in the life of the church, we've often used it to mean divinely ordained. Yes. And you're using it in that sense too. So even though these things don't look spectacular, the minister in the pulpit, bread and wine, baptismal water, gathering together with the congregation for prayer, listening to sermons, all those things, they don't seem extraordinary or spectacular, but they are divinely ordained. Yeah, the God of uh, creator of all heaven and earth, the judge of the living and the dead, has not only become flesh for us in his son Jesus Christ, died for us and was raised for us, but he sent his Holy Spirit into this world, truly extraordinary, Pentecost is extraordinary, but to do what he does through ordinary means. And as a result, you have to be where God has promised to deliver this extraordinary result from ordinary means. Think of a wealthy person, a benefactor who is going to give you a check for a surgery. You can't afford this life-saving operation. You have no insurance. He says, I'll meet you at the corner of Vine and Fifth. And so you go there and it's kind of broken down. The sign is a mess. It looks like a tire shop. And you walk in and the cups are chipped and uh, there's lipstick on your coffee cup. But then sure enough, sitting over in the corner is a guy who doesn't look like a billionaire. He's dressed in ordinary clothes, even looks like a pauper. He uh, pulls up his hat, he looks up at you and he motions for you to come over and sit down by him. And he takes out the check and gives it to you. Well, you're meeting him where he promised to meet you, even though it doesn't look spectacular. It looked implausible. It looked implausible. Well, it looked implausible to people that God showed up in a manger, a feeding trough, and it looked implausible that God was actually in Christ saving us with the God-man hanging on a cross. That just looked implausible. But that's how God does things. And even now, he says, listen, stop talking. I'm going to tell you where I'm going to meet you. It's going to be where anybody can meet me, the poor as well as the rich, the uneducated as well as the the PhD, those who are from a privileged background, those who are from an unprivileged background. Anybody, I'm accessible to everyone in that coffee shop. And that coffee shop is that little church in the Wildwood or in the strip mall or wherever it is where we come to hear God address us once again as his people by addressing us to remake us as co-heirs of Christ's estate, and then to signify and seal to us that we belong to him through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, as regularly he feeds us. This is where he promises to bathe and feed and teach and instruct and lead us through our pilgrim way until we reach the heavenly homeland. That is the ordinary Christian life, and it's really superb. It is what God has ordained. The ordinary is the ordained. It's not something that we can come up with on our own. We always create the wrong place with the wrong path. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.